morning, everyone. Just as a word of warning, I'm going to be on vacation next week, so Max will be doing the announcements probably again, so <laughs> be ready for that. <laughs> so good. <laughs> oh, man, but it is good to be, good to be with you all this morning. I am, I am thankful uh, for this time together and uh, this time uh, in God's Word. So let me pray for us one more time as we move into it. Lord, thank you for this time together. Thank you that we can uh, be joyful, that we can laugh together. Um, thank you for the fellowship that we, that we share in Christ, as Max prayed, and uh, pray that you would continue to build that today and help us to see your goodness uh, in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So on August 1st, it will be 40 years since the launch of a cultural icon, the channel simply known as MTV. Now, at the time, in 1981, an entire channel devoted just to music was a very interesting and bold idea. I was very young when MTV started. I definitely watched maybe too much of it growing up. Uh, And when MTV started, what it did was it played a lot of music videos. But as the years went by, it wasn't enough just to show music videos. And eventually, MTV started another channel called VH1. And both MTV and VH1 played a lot of music videos, but they also developed a bunch of shows to begin to accompany those videos. And on VH1, the show that was actually the biggest hit was a show called Behind the Music. Anyone watch this show? want to admit it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for admitting that. I did too. What the show attempted to do was to take musical artists or great bands and tell their story. And the show was, was like I said, a huge hit for VH1. But while the show was a huge hit, people began to notice that every episode seemed to follow the same exact pattern. The band comes out of nowhere. The band starts getting popular. The band achieves some success. The band maybe overcomes some external rivals like that record company that just didn't believe in them. And you just really sense, you know, the band is together and and, and going really strong. But there was a phrase that was used so often on the show that it became a catchphrase. And that phrase was, but backstage, things were falling apart. And then they go to commercial, then they'd come back, and then they would tell you all about the infighting that happened among the members of the band. It was almost, and it was almost always this infighting and these internal threats that would eventually take the band down rather than any threats from the outside. And what's true in bands is true in, in many other areas as well, right? Sports teams, political parties, businesses, and even sometimes churches. While all these groups face challenges from the outside, sometimes the most dangerous threats are the ones that come from inside, and especially through division. And we've seen that all along, I think, through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. As the Israelites have returned again to Jerusalem, they have endured both external and internal pressure. And last week, we heard from Max in Nehemiah 4 about some of the external pressure that the Israelites were facing. And we saw how Nehemiah turned to the Lord, confident that the Lord would fight for them and his people, even as they endured this pressure from outside opponents. And we saw how they all banded together to confront this external threat. But this week in Nehemiah 5, we're going to see a grave internal threat, one that is triggered by the exploitation of people. And this threatened to, to completely divide the Israelite community because it cut to the heart of what that community of God's people was called to. And in this passage, there's going to be a real moment of truth for the Israelite community, and in this moment of truth, I think there's plenty to consider for the present-day church as well. 
Our passage today, at least the way we'll be approaching it, is divided into three parts. So first we're going to see the problem, the things that are going wrong in Israel. And then we're going to see Nehemiah deal with the problem. And then finally at the end we'll see Nehemiah's example. So let's begin with looking at the problem. I want to read verses 1 to 5 again and we'll focus on it. It says, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the, is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. So coming off all the teamwork of chapter 4, we can see right away that things indeed are falling apart in a bad way. Because as the wall was, was being built and as everyone was banding together, there was a whole group of people that were being pushed to the margins and they were now suffering greatly. And this suffering is, is bad news enough, but verse 1 tells us that this outcry isn't against just, you know, some bad people on the outside. It's not like the Pharaoh of, of Egypt has come back to oppress the Israelites again. No, this outcry is against their Jewish brothers and that makes it doubly serious. And one hint that we get that this is really serious is that Nehemiah tells us that not only were the men involved in this outcry, but so were the wives. Because women in Ezra and Nehemiah pretty much play a background role. But for them to be at the forefront here tells us that something very important is happening. And so this outcry is raised, and it's about food. Now, it's interesting because there's a lot of outcries about food in the Old Testament, but usually it's because the people are complaining, right, and not trusting God. But this is a different type of outcry because the outcry is being raised by some faithful people who have joined in the effort to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. But even as they've joined in this very important effort, commentators have pointed out that there's multiple circumstances that have come together to put these people in a really bad spot. First of all, the nation itself was probably cut off from its neighbors because, remember, the neighbors were opposing the building of the wall. And so things like trade and bringing in food were probably quite difficult. Second, Nehemiah, remember, had ordered that that building the wall was the priority. And this would have greatly affected everybody and would have affected those who typically spent their time farming. Third, there's a pretty significant tax burden that we hear about that the farmers were responsible for. And that burden was was very difficult to meet because of these other circumstances at play. And there's also a famine mentioned here. Now, we don't know if this is like an area-wide famine or just that there's a famine because of the factors that we talked about, but what we do know is that this is a desperate situation. And because of this desperate situation, these Israelites have had to resort to desperate measures. They've had to incur debt by mortgaging their fields and houses, and that's obviously bad news. But the bad news escalates when we get to verse 5, where we see how deep and dehumanizing this situation has become for at least one group. And those that raise this outcry preface their complaint by reminding Nehemiah that they are men and women, just like the rest of their covenant community. They say, our flesh is as their flesh. And our children are as their children. And yet there is serious injustice happening to them. 
because they are suffering in a way that others are not. And this is not just unjust, it actually diminishes the humanity of those that are suffering. In 1968, two men who were sanitation workers in Memphis named Echol Cole and Robert Walker went to their job despite flooding rains in the city. And they tried to get shelter from the rain in the back of the truck. And there was a switch that malfunctioned, the trash compactor turned on and they were killed. And this was the end of the rope for about 1,300 black sanitation workers in Memphis. They walked off the job in protest, not just for this incident, but for all kinds of terrible working conditions and low pay that they were experiencing. And the strike is memorable because it eventually led to the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in Memphis, but it's also memorable because it produced one of the most enduring images of the civil rights movement. When the protesters, you've probably seen this, wore placards that simply said, I am a man. The message was, look, we are flesh and blood like everybody else. Can we please be treated like the human beings that we are? And that's a little bit what these Israelite men and women are saying, except this situation is even more painful because their oppression is occurring not at the hands of some government authority, but at the hands of their brothers and sisters in the covenant community. And it's not just a minor injustice. The situation is so dire that these men and women have been forced to sell their children into slavery. And, and you can just hear the helplessness in this passage, can't you? They have no power to do anything about it because they've already had to mortgage off their fields. You know, in the Bible, one of the ways to tell how bad things have gotten is when you see God's original purposes for his creation get unwound and undone. So think about it. When, when God creates the world, he separates the land from the waters. And then when God brings judgment on sin in the time of Noah, what happens? The waters cover the land again. And, and God's good creation is basically reversed. If you look back at the plagues in Exodus, it's basically an undoing of God's well-ordered creation. And you've got insects everywhere. Their, their river turns to blood. There's death. There's all kinds of awful things happening. And I actually think you see something similar here because you remember that when God created men and women, how did he do it? He created them in his image with great dignity. And while they are totally dependent on him, they're also empowered to work and keep the land and to have dominion and stewardship over the rest of God's creation. And they were given the gift also of, of bearing children, fellow image bearers, and raising them to know God's goodness. But here, in the beginning of Nehemiah 5, all of that seems to be undone, right? The people have lost ownership of the fields that they used to work. Their work has become undignified as they can't provide for their needs and they're being crushed. They feel powerless. They feel helpless. And the gift of children has even turned into a curse because now they're bearing the pain of seeing their children forced into slavery. It's just a total mess. And it's not happening in Egypt. It's happening in Israel and Jerusalem within the special community that God has set apart for himself. And what happens so often, we know this in human history, is that those who are pushed to the margins are kept there. Those pushed to the margins typically aren't heard from because their voices don't help the powerful. And so while what has happened in these first few verses is a great tragedy, it also presents an opportunity for Nehemiah and for the community to respond. It's an invitation to become the people that God has called them to be. 
And we see what happens beginning in verse 6. Nehemiah says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers, that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. We turn to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. See, the first step in dealing with this type of injustice and oppression we see in this passage is really to be bothered by it. Unfortunately, you know, one thing that can happen to us as human beings living in a fallen world is that we can sometimes become numb to the awful things that happen. But Nehemiah's heart for God won't allow him to simply look the other way while this is going on, and so he deals with it. The second thing we should note is just the fact that Nehemiah listens to those who have suffered. One of the calls incumbent upon all who follow God is to be slow to speak and quick to listen, and this takes on great meaning when it comes to issues of of oppression and injustice. When people are marginalized, it it can be easy to, to, to dismiss their voices and not take them seriously. Because if we ourselves aren't on the margins, it can be hard to listen. It can be hard to understand because we just, we just expect that our experience of life is normative. And it's just hard to grapple with experiences that aren't normative to us. But this listening is crucial because it reflects the character of God. Psalm ten seventeen says, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. And Nehemiah does this. And by doing this, he honors these people and he reasserts their dignity by listening to them. And as he listens and and as he considers, Nehemiah gets angry. And he's not angry because he's offended or because the whole situation makes him look bad as a leader, but because the honor of God is at stake. Because he sees that things are clearly not the way they are supposed to be. And because Nehemiah is a leader, he he bears some responsibility for, for what is going on in the community and he addresses it. Now, mind you, I am sure that this was not easy for Nehemiah to do. See, we already know that that God has has given Nehemiah the gift of courage, because we remember how he approached the king back in Nehemiah 1. And we know that Nehemiah showed great courage when he stood up to the external opposition. But I, I wonder if this is Nehemiah's most courageous moment yet, because here he has to confront his own people. That is not easy to do. And so Nehemiah recounts what has happened after great effort by the people of Israel and the grace of God to to get their brothers and sisters out of slavery. The nobles and the officials, the rich people, were capitalizing on the suffering of those in need. 
and they're turning a profit on it. And the poor and, and desperate are getting more poor and more desperate, while the rich are getting richer and richer. And all this is happening during a time of crisis for the Israelite people. This was a time for them to be together, to, to build the wall, to bear one another's burdens. And the exact opposite is happening. And in what I think is a very good move when they're confronted with this, the nobles and officials don't say anything. <laughs> they don't make excuses. They don't say, well, what about what all those other people are doing? No, they're just silent. They know they haven't acted righteously. There's one author, put it this way, he was commenting on the book of Proverbs, that he says, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. And the nobles and officials are acting in the category of the wicked here, and it seems like they know it. And so Nehemiah continues, because not only are they taking dignity away from and disadvantaging their brothers and sisters, ultimately they are dishonoring the Lord. Remember Samballot and Tobiah, those enemies of Israel in Nehemiah 4. Remember how they made fun of the wall that was being built. They would have had a field day with this news that this supposedly special group of people called by God was treating one another this way. How the people of God treat each other is always a witness, for good or bad, to a watching world. And in all of this lies, I think, one of the great opportunities, actually, for the church in our culture today. We always remember that, that we live in a world full of sin and suffering, and that those two things often overlap. And so we have the opportunity to be very clear about the sin that we see in our own hearts and around us, and not just to look the other way because it's easier or because it's unpopular or whatever. And so we have the opportunity and the privilege to be very clear about sin that leads to this injustice and dehumanization in so many areas, be it sexuality, abortion, racism, sexism, greed, unholy anger, and on and on and on. But the second opportunity for the church is not only to call out these sins and call for repentance and to repent where we've been complicit, but to be a place where those who have suffered from these injustices will be listened to and affirmed in their dignity as God's image bearers, to welcome the people at the margins and to hear them. See, it's important and it's also an invitation to a fuller understanding of who God is and what it means to follow him. We need these voices. I mentioned that the Memphis sanitation strike earlier and the fight for dignity. It's one reason, and I've said it many times, the majority black church in America is such a big part of the story of the church in America. And it's a story we still need today. The story of a marginalized people coming together to a place where, where the gospel was faithfully preached and also where people who were told all week that, that they weren't worth anything and that their lives didn't matter. They were told, no, you have been created by God with great dignity, and he delights in you. We need these voices. And as Max prayed in his pastoral prayer, and as we often do, we need the voices of Christians around the world who have suffered from persecution and dehumanization. Just this week, I heard about a hymn entitled, Call Me By My Name. This is a hymn sung by factory workers in Singapore. And in these factories, people were stripped of their names, and they were simply referred to by numbers. And so when believers who worked in these factories all week being told, you know what, you don't really matter, when they gathered on Sundays, they needed to embark on a project of being re-dignified. And they would sing this song together. Alone I am, yet not alone, 
There are people all around. I bear a name, yet I have none. I'm lost. Can I be found? Just call me by my name. Just call me by my name. Just call me by my name, O my Lord. Just call me by my name. It's obviously more true for some than for others, but, you know, we are all living in a world that at times can dehumanize us. Part of the privilege of coming to church and part of the church's calling is to be a place where we are reminded that he knows our name and we have the privilege of knowing and loving each other, not as objects to be used, but as people to be loved. And the third opportunity for Christians and for churches is to consider how we can disadvantage ourselves so that others might flourish. I think this is going to be especially relevant in the months and maybe the years to come. Thank the Lord the pandemic seems to be ending. But there are economic effects that are going to endure. Those effects are likely to be disproportionately distributed. Some churches, some areas of the world are coming out okay, not a ton of lost jobs, church budgets are fine, and so on. I'm telling you, that's not going to be the case everywhere. And so as we consider our brothers and sisters in Christ, we're going to have the privilege of considering real ways we might disadvantage ourselves so that others can flourish. That's something we can do as individuals and as a church. 1 John 3.17 comes to mind, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? But on the flip side, there's a great opportunity. Just as the crisis in Nehemiah's day was an opportunity for God's people, I believe we have some serious opportunities ahead of us. Wouldn't it be great if one of the main things the church in America is known for in the months and years to come is how well we care for the poor and the oppressed and how well we responded when crisis came? Look, I have no illusions that will make like everyone love us or anything like that. As, as Max reminded us last week, that the gospel itself is offensive. And Satan himself is opposed to the work of the church. But it will honor the Lord, it will display the character of God, and it will be the aroma of life to some in a world where so many feel the crush of being dehumanized. This is what Nehemiah called the people to, and by the grace of God, they respond. It's really amazing. They agree that they are going to end this oppression and end this injustice. And they restore everything that they've taken. And they're going to stop requiring interest from these people Basically, they, they repent, and, and in this process, they are becoming more fully the people that God called them to be. But I love what Nehemiah does. He's making sure this isn't just like a, a false promise, a one-time thing. He demonstrates that he is serious about this. He's like, look, you guys are going to take an oath about this. And then he shakes out his robe to tell them, look, this is what will happen to you if you don't fulfill this oath. This is a big moment for God's people. It's a recommitment, and Nehemiah wants to make sure they understand and so Nehemiah calls his people to this way of life, but he didn't just call them to it, he lived it out. And we see that in our final six verses, starting in verse 14. It says, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. 
Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people." In this last section, rather than talking about what other people were doing, Nehemiah recounts how he refused to go along with the general practice of enriching himself at the expense of others. Look, Nehemiah, as as the governor, he had rights that he very well could have taken advantage of. There There was a food allowance, and those that came before Nehemiah and led before Nehemiah did, they took full advantage of it, and they made themselves rich while those under them became poor. And it was a heavy burden for the people. And that's just the way that things worked. Local leaders would would get what they could from all the people, and then they would have to give some to the leaders above them, but they would have to keep enough so that they could be rich. And, you know, on and on the scam went. It was just a big pyramid scheme, and the people at the bottom bore the burden. But Nehemiah is different. And he's different because honoring God was more important to him than enriching himself. He embodies what Jesus would later say, For what does a prophet, a man, to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? One of the things we see that is understandably upsetting, I think, in the world is when people use jobs that are supposed to be about serving others to enrich themselves. During the pandemic, I I read a lot. And I read a really, like, long, multi-part biography of a former president of the United States. And there were many details of how this man, despite working in politics, basically his whole life, became incredibly rich. It's like, how did that happen? Because he's using his connections to, to acquire assets. And it's, we see that happen, right? And it's always disappointing when we read that or hear about that. And it's even more disappointing when we hear of Christian ministers that, that use their callings to make themselves rich. There's something in there that we just know that that's not right. And Nehemiah, as a government official who's also called as a leader of God's people, he wants to emphasize that this is not the case for himself. Rather than being filled up by the labor of the people, he is pouring himself out for the benefit of others. 150 people at his table every day, abundantly providing for them. And for emphasis, Nehemiah repeats again that even though he was doing this, he didn't demand the allowance that was due to him. He and his people, they're they're devoted to to, to building the wall, not acquiring land and capitalizing while everyone else is building the wall. He wasn't going to lead like so many others led. And he implores God to remember all the good that he has done. Not in an arrogant way. He's just saying God has given him a mission and he puts before God that he is running the race that has been set before him. You know, in all these things, Nehemiah is clearly pointing us beyond himself, to one who would someday come and live like this in a much greater way. You know, it's almost impossible to read Nehemiah 5 and not consider Jesus. Jesus steps into a world full of sin and suffering and injustice and oppression. And just as Nehemiah stood in front of an assembly of God's people, so does Jesus come and he stands before a synagogue. He unrolls a scroll and he reads those words from Isaiah The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And while Nehemiah's message was, was generally accepted by the people he addresses, Jesus' message often was not, because there were people who were far more concerned with enriching themselves and preserving their own power rather than giving themselves away for the good of others. And just as Nehemiah calls out sin, so does Jesus. And he calls these leaders out, and he points out, look, you refuse to even lift a finger to help the people, and you're weighing them down with heavy burdens. And he even calls out government officials like Herod, who he calls a fox because of his unjust ways. And just like Nehemiah wasn't a man of mere words, (laughs) neither was Jesus. Nehemiah gave himself away for his people, but no one does this like Jesus did. Jesus leaves his father's side in heaven, and who is he born to? An unwed mother who was way on the margins of her society. And where does he grow up? In a town that was so backwards that people made fun of it. And he associates with people that others would barely even treat as humans. The sick, the ones seen as great sinners, the foreigners. And he cares for them, and he provides for them, and he heals them, and he asserts their dignity in a world that has told them they're not worth anything. And just as Nehemiah prepared a table where he gave his riches away, Jesus also prepared a table for his disciples. They shared a meal together right before the end of his life, but this meal was to point toward a much greater sacrifice that Jesus would make for his people. The bread of the meal signifying his body and the cup of wine representing his blood. And Jesus would give his very self for us by enduring an unjust, incredibly undignified death on a Roman cross with even the clothes on his back taken from him. Earlier, I read from a song sung by factory workers who were enduring dehumanizing conditions in their work, a song entitled, Call Me By My Name. I read one verse, but there's also a final verse. This is what it says. It says, Away from grave and nameless rut, a man for others came. Upon the lives of all, he put a price, a soul, a name. Just call me by my name. Just call me by my name. Just call me by my name, O my Lord. Just call me by my name. He came and gave himself away for us. And we have the joy of giving ourselves away for him and for our brothers and sisters in faith, knowing that he sees and knowing that he calls us by our name. Isn't he good? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. And we thank you that you are a God who cares about those on the margins, who cares about injustice, who even care about us. And we thank you so much for sending Jesus into this world. Lord, even though we were once your enemies, by your grace, Jesus came and endured all these things and died on a cross for our sin. Lord, we pray that we would see the great, great privilege of knowing you, being called by name, and then reflecting that love to a world around us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.